Hello, I'm Colin Brown, and this is Filmonomics at Slated. Welcome to the first in our new series of weekly podcasts that will peek behind the often impenetrable curtain of the global film business. With the help of an invited guest speaker each week, we will look to deconstruct the decision-making process involved in making movies. Now, as a filmmaker yourself, perhaps, or just as a lover of cinema, you may have found yourself asking, why do some movie ideas get made and not others? Well, we'll examine the key factors that come into play when making those financing and distribution decisions that determine what gets seen on screens. We'll also discuss what tricks and tools are out there that can help more filmmakers and ideas find the paying audiences that their talents deserve. This was the democratizing impulse that inspired the creation of Slate in the first place as a film financing and analytics platform. And now, by sharing some of our insights and connections through this podcast series, we hope we can inspire a better informed and much more diverse movie-making ecosystem. Every week, we will speak and compare notes with a film industry executive who has a finger or two on that green lighting button. What you'll hear are snippets of interviews interspersed with observations and some backgrounds that puts those answers into some kind of context. And where we can, we'll also furnish you with relevant data from Slated's analytics team. All of these invited guests are members of the Slated online marketplace. Some of them put their own money into films, some pick material and talent combinations that will invite other people's money, and some have the ear to the ground in terms of what the marketplace will pay for right now and what future audiences might respond to. For this episode, we spoke to Rowan Riley. She works as Vice President of both Development and Production at Burn Later Productions, a smart-thinking, indie-producing and financing outfit with a presence in both Boston and LA. The company has built a reputation making character-driven comedies, such as Drinking Buddies, Adult Beginners and Results. And like many others in the indies world, Rowan's company is trying to chase that most elusive of audiences, the me generation of millennials that came of age with a mobile device in their hands or a computer in their laps. This is a hard-to-please demographic, and as you'll hear, that chase has a bearing on everything from the choice of material, the choice of filmmaker, the choice of production teams, all the way to budgets and financing models. It's harder to shock them than it is to shock previous generations. If you can shock a millennial, and show them something they haven't seen before, which, as I said, is harder than probably any generation prior, then that's you're doing your, your good job. But before we get into that whole millennial quest, I began by asking Rowan about Burn Later's strategies when it comes to putting together a comedy script that will click with tomorrow's indie audiences. As I'm sure you know, Colin, your cast is very important with comedy and putting together the, great, the best ensemble with something like a thriller, Obviously, cast is always important, but, you know, you'd probably just need one to two great people in a thriller, and then everything else is just background, you know? Um, but with comedy, it's really important. It's cyclical film, right? The stories that worked in the 90s don't really work as much in, you know, the early aughts, and then it's everything changes. Like, right now, I find that that um, the younger generation of uh, film goers love the 90s. Just as in the 90s, I was obsessed with uh with the 70s and 70s film and they seem to be obsessed with the 90s so it's sort of figuring out well as opposed to just riding the wave like creating a wave i suppose and figuring out well what what will people want to see next and getting ahead of that curve so we feel like in we we have a particular specialty in comedy at burn later but um we're also interested in like something like it follows i thought really got ahead of the horror curve and created something new uh, and uh, used sort of 
it wasn't just a slasher movie. It was a metaphor, that movie, for, you know, S- STDs, in my opinion, and, and the hysteria around that. And, and that's, the best horror films do that. And I think the best comedies do that, too. The, the best comedies, Obvious Child and et cetera, they say something about our time period. As Rowan says, staying ahead of that audience curve in terms of their expectations as moviegoers is a key concern these days. But achieving that involves not just finding fresh stories to tell, but also fresh ways in which to tell those stories. Production execution is something that Rowan and her company founders, Paul Burnham, Sam Slater and David Burnham, really focus on as they try to set their comedies apart, as you can hear from her now. Well, and that actually goes back to your point about how I dabble in both development and production. And um, I'm lucky in that Paul and Sam are very good with production. Um, so I can, uh, you know, I learn from them a bit, in a, a great deal in that regard. But I've always had a very strong interest in that side and never wanted to be the quote unquote D girl. I take great care and, and make sure I'm involved in picking department heads and getting to know those department heads. And one thing that interests me, I don't know if this is true or not, but it's something that I, I'm really striving for, is to find, to tell stories just in the actual physical production. Um, you know, I always say, like, we get a ton of, uh, I don't want to say dumb, but a ton of very repetitive comedies about weddings, about the odd man out at the wedding, right, who finds love. And they're pretty boring to me. I never want to do them, even if they're well-written. But, you know, I say to myself, like, well, what if that was set in Detroit, you know? Or what if it was set in some town? And then what's the comedy of falling in love in a place like Detroit right now? That could really actually make it a much more interesting story. New York isn't the only place for a romantic comedy. L.A. isn't the only place, you know? And Austin even. You know, let's try to, like, get out to other cities and put the... I remember when I watched Reality Bites as a kid wanting desperately to move to um, Houston. And so I think, you know, where you set your production, how you make it look, all of that can contribute to creating a new comedy as much as the script. That's just something that I think about a lot, how to be able to do that. We're very proud of our movie, Lemon, that we just did that was just at Sundance. Uh, The director, Janixa Bravo, is really exceptional at that, at creating her own visual landscape. I think the comedy was as much in the physical production as it was in the script. Maybe not as much, but it was definitely on the screen. One of Bernlader's achievements has been its ability to attract top-line talents and familiar names to what are often low-budget productions. This, as you'll hear next from Rowan, involves a considerable amount of strategic thinking. Well, Bernlader, um, Paul and Sam and David are masters at that. Um, uh, and I've learned a lot from them. And I've, I've always been drawn to, let's say, I mean, the whole Jim Carrey, Eternal Sunshine of Spotless Mind model of taking a, a comedic actor and putting them in a serious role. So in an ensemble, it's really, I think it's fun to have your traditional comedians and then to have someone who's never worked in the indie space or perhaps has never worked in the comedy space, but who's a, a, a terrific actor. And I think sometimes you can get a really quality uh, actor, actor with value, who just wants to try something different. Like Ryan Gosling wants to do comedy, so maybe he'll, he'll, I wouldn't say be less picky, but he'll, he'll take a bigger risk on like a, a smaller, a smaller comedy if, if the role's great. Something that he wouldn't previously not do. So, you know, I think I'm always have my ear to the ground to sort of find out like, what does this actor want to do next? You know, Mary J. Blige wants to do a comedy. Okay, that's it. You know, that's interesting. You know, whoever wants to try out comedy, you know, I think 
the willingness to do that and the desire to do that. If their agents are tell selling you that they want to be doing comedy, it, it probably means that they have a strong desire and that they're really going to give it their all, you know? So I think putting people not in the lead role, but like maybe in, in a supporting role, that's always really exciting to see. And then also those unexpected finds on a movie that you, someone you haven't seen in a while that pops up in a movie is really exciting. You know, so just having an unexpected cast is, I think, one thing I've discovered that works really well. Like Lemon has a, you know, some, a, some an, it's an unexpected ensemble. You've got someone like Sherry Appleby, who's a phenomenal actress, but who's mostly done TV work. So this was her, you know, one of her first indie roles. And she really enjoyed doing it, I think, as a result. So I think finding out what the actors want to do first, like what, and just keeping a mental list or even a real list of like those actors that want to work in the comedy space. And conversely, if you're doing a, a thriller, a comedic actor who wants to dip their toes into a more serious role. So by now you may be thinking like I did, how much of this decision-making is based on instinct and accumulated wisdom and how much on science and systematic analysis? Or to put it another way, is there a method to the seeming madness? A formula, even. Is there a formula? If there was a formula for it, I suppose uh, it wouldn't be fun. And we'd all be a lot more successful, though, perhaps, right? <laughs> and I guess once there, there becomes a bit of a formula, there's something in the zeitgeist or there's something that destroys that formula and you have to start it all over again. For example, this year at Sundance, like, uh, not, there were, the, the movies that were the, some of the biggest sales didn't have the biggest cast. There were certain things this year that would have sold for a lot more, in my opinion, last year. And every year it's a different puzzle. Every year distributors go for something different, you know, and that's good. It, it's baffling from a producer's perspective and, and for, certainly from a, an investment standpoint because it just keeps changing. But it is good from an audience standpoint because you're not necessarily getting the same thing over and over again, at least not with independent film. I don't, I'm not going to speak to the studio level. Maybe it's the effects of altitude epoxy, but every year it seems to be the same story. The same buyers who arrived talking about being burned at last year's festival after overpaying for films and vowing never to do the same again are soon bidding against each other for the choicest films. All that reasoned analysis seems to go out of the window and raw competitive instincts take over. Taste and intuition is as much, if not more, part of the equation here as hard market numbers. But as Rowan points out, there's also a more recent element that has entered the thinking, a desperation to reach younger audiences who've been defecting to other forms of entertainment and distraction. I think there's a lot of personality to distributors in both good and bad ways. And I, but I also think there's a sense of like, how do we reach that the, the, the young millennial? I'm not saying the middle-aged millennial, like 28, 29 maybe, but like, how do we start really reaching the younger millennial, you know, with films like Thoroughbred and Ingrid Goes West this year at Sundance, those, they had healthy sales and uh, they were very, both very good scripts and everything else. Um, so they did, were deserving of those sales, but I think there was also a commerciality to those projects. I don't think distributors were as interested in that, in that sort of film. And I don't think people were really making that sort of film for millennials that are cr both critiques of millennials or, or catering to younger audiences. I think um, that's a, at least that's something that really interests me is how do you get those people who are watching movies on their phone to watch them on a big screen or even just on Netflix or something, you know? 
With all that in mind, I asked Rowan to tell us a little about the thinking process involved in picking her story ideas in the first place, and for choosing the filmmakers to bring those stories to life. In terms of a formula, absolutely, like, it really is on a case-by-case basis. If we really like the director, if it's someone we've been tracking, then we'll, and if it's a, if the material feels fresh, then I think you are going to say, come on board this project early without any cast. But there are also so many great packages out there. You've got you to look at those as well. It's really just um, evaluating cast, material, director, and budget. And is the, is the budget too high for, if it's a first-time director and the budget's $5 million, that's a scary thing. That's something that we're going to be very wary of just right off the bat. I think it's it's very hard to ju- justify, you know, giving a first-time director, this is a horrible thing to say, maybe I shouldn't say it, but it's very hard to justify without a very strong short, or, I mean, I think there's some directors who just haven't made a feature for a variety of reasons. They're commercial directors, and they've done, like, commercials in the, to the tune of 2 or $3 million that they've just never made a feature, you know? But that's its own demon, because then a high-end commercial director who's never done a feature is spending let's say 500k a day on a, I don't know, a Facebook uh, commercial. I'm just making these numbers up, of course, not uh, not an exact example, but, you know, like it, it, their budget is doesn't correlate to uh, indie film, you know, and so then you have to say to yourself, well, will they be able to make their days, you know, as a commercial director? So even, even if they've got a strong sample of work, I, I personally prefer the person who's gone to film school or who has been steadily making shorts and they don't need to be great the first but if if you see a steady improvement in their work or if they've made they come out of film school and they've made one really great short that's played at Sundance doesn't need to play at Sundance that is always of course helpful but they have a strong sample or they've worked in the industry for a really long time I just think experience is what I look for most in terms of the director I think you just look at their track record in film overall and then say like, well, what budgets have they commanded, you know, and then surround them with the right people is important and make sure that you've got a strong cast, you know, and then I think that's one thing that you look at, you know, can they get that cast too? like, how would this person be in a room and everything else? Of course, not every production company is able to get the strongest cast for their chosen budgets. As some of you listeners out there can testify, no doubt, Sometimes you're forced to chase actors based purely on their perceived international sales value and so-called bankability, rather than their actual suitability for a particular role. How has Burn Later managed to bypass this issue, pretty much? Well, the trick, it seems, is not being entirely dependent on other people's money, which means having access to your own resources and also keeping a sufficient lid on budgets to be able to back one's own development hunches. It's a constant tussle between creative ambition and cost control. Again, I, I, I credit Paul, Sam, and David for sort of, you know, being one of the pioneers of this model um, of of putting together a really strong, unique uh, ensemble. I don't know that I think at a certain budget range you need the the foreign name, but if you're trafficking under a certain amount, you know, certainly under three or four million, you're. I think it's possible to do that with the right cast a strong director and financiers who are willing to take that risk, I think. For us, uh, it's worked out. 
but we're also we're we're also entirely open to the foreign sales model and, and they're actually exploring that more and more but i think with comedy there's less there you know there's just less value for comedy overseas you know there's less of an appetite for that unless it's physical comedy it tends not to travel well overseas and vice versa one of the new forces that have helped level the playing field here in terms of budgeting is social media until recently, the indie world has had to rely on the same lists of proven but unattainable stars with which to unlock financing. Now, at least in theory, the YouTube era has opened up an entire world of new and presumably much less expensive talents with which to spice up those casts and even promote the films later to younger audiences. Certainly that's been the pitch. So are we starting to see these new faces emerge as potentially bankable names? I think so. The quote-unquote influencers, and you get a lot of scripts where they say, in recent years, you hear this more and more from agents, managers, etc., that, that, you know, oh, um, it's some actor I've never heard of who has, or I shouldn't say actor, some uh, sort of YouTube star who has five million followers. But it's an argument that not everyone is buying into quite yet. Burn later for one. No, it doesn't, it doesn't work for me. And I, you know, I think we all might have to start accepting that more and more, but I think there's been a resistance to that slightly just, it, it's hard because, um, without giving these people a chance, we don't know if they're good or not, but you know, it's, it's very hard to say if you have X amount of followers on online and you do this one certain shtick online that you can actually be a well-rounded actor. I think who's to say, you know, I think certainly there's a part of me that would love to find the next Jennifer Lawrence on YouTube. That would be a huge coup, but also, um, it's a, it's a huge risk. And there are people who train to be actors, um, all their lives. So you want to, uh, try to honor that tradition, but also be open to influencers, I guess. I haven't found, we haven't particularly found that, that influencer, um, project yet, but I have no doubt that they're out there, you know? Something like Patty Cakes was amazing, and I, it was also just a gorgeous script, I thought. I think people, audiences want to be surprised, surprised, pleasantly so, above all else. You know, I think millennials, I think millennials particularly want that, actually, you know? I think they want their movie stars, but they also want, I think they see them so much online and on Instagram, and they're following them, that to see a new face is, is a little bit shocking to them and it's it's hard probably it's harder to shock them than it is to shock previous generations you know uh so if you can do that if you can shock a millennial and show them something they haven't seen before which as i said is harder <laughs> than probably any generation prior then that's you're doing your, your good job before signing off with rowan i asked whether looking back on her work so far both at burn later and previously as a producer there were any unexpected successes or internal hunches that paid off for her or things that she's particularly proud of? Well, one movie that I haven't met, I mean, you know, it's still early on in my career, but I've been blessed with working on, you know, I, I think some really exciting movies. And as I said, I, I value the production team a lot and putting that together. One movie, I guess, that I didn't talk about that I am very proud of as well was uh, is Christine. And that was a big learning experience for me because I guess everyone just said, you're great. This some people love the script, but even those that love this, a lot of people love the script. But even those that love the script said you're crazy for wanting to do this movie about a you know reporter in in 1974 who essentially blows her brains off on live television. 
you know, that's not, that is not a winning model for success. And I, not that I saw this as being finding Dory or whatever, but I did think that it had value to the world. And I did think that it would be a movie that people saw and thought was important and that touched them. I, I was especially interested in, in making this for women who uh, lived through the 70s, of all walks of life, um, who could appreciate the struggles of being a woman in the 70s. And you didn't have to have depression as, uh, you know, Christine had, Christine Shabek, the lead character. You didn't have to have that. It was just a depressing time for for everyone to a degree, but particularly if you were a career woman. So, um, yeah, so I think that really fascinated me. And I think a lot of people said no. We just, we believed in that story. And I think, you know, like I said, it didn't make Finding Dory numbers, but it really did have a, it did find the right home. And we always said, like, we just, or I always thought, you know, I think this is the kind, if we do this right, if we execute it perfectly, you know, this will be the kind of movie that Manola Dargis, you know, writes for, like, front page weekend review, you know, a weekend art section review. And, and we got that. And that was um, not the review itself, but just knowing that we got there was very gratifying and that many, many people along the way, there were so many people that supported. I don't want to say that, of course, but there were just as many people that thought that it was an insane idea to make this movie, a period movie too. And we did it for very little and it wasn't an easy period movie at all. And that was really exciting to see, um, to be able to, to pull that off. If you want a sense of the level of risk involved here, it's worth noting that Rebecca Hall, the fast-rising English-American star, was not attached to play the lead role at the time Rowan came on board. And nor had the director, Antonio Campos, signed on yet. No, no, no one was attached. It was just me and, um, and the writer and also another producer, Alicia Vancouvering. So it was just really the three of us was very Sisyphean for a while. We'd push it up, get some traction, and then it would just fall back down the hill. So, yeah, no, it was about a year of that, I would say. And then we got Antonio, and then you know, which was great, and that then it, it became less Sisyphean, but still was a struggle, you know. So, yeah, it was that was a really fun one. Uh, I guess I'm personally proud of of fighting for that, if that makes sense. The main production company involved in making that film, Borderline Films, is itself an interesting independent model almost a collective approach to filmmaking. This nurturing self-support system had a big influence on everyone involved. Yeah, and I, yeah, and I found that, and I think that's where I really got um, very, became very invested and said, I'm not going to be this producer who just waltzes on set, uh, that I'm going to try my hardest to try to really get involved in, in um, selecting the right crew, uh, that that's important, because I saw that, I learned that from Borderline Films. They have an incredibly loyal crew and absolutely to make a period movie for essentially like under two is, is, is a real foolish endeavor unless in the only way to do it is to have the, the, the extremely loyal crew base and to say like experience is important, but not everything. It's like that desire to achieve something, um, not just for yourself. A lot of them, a lot of the people were just at that cusp where they had had a lot of experience, but like this movie could really push them in because it was period and challenging and there was an exciting look to it. If they nailed it, that would push them to the next echelon of film. You know, that they, if they can do that kind of movie, then, hey, you could do a $10 million movie, no problem. If you could do this for two, then, you know, or under, then you can do, uh, absolutely do A Most Violent Year or something like that. 
And there in a nutshell is why indie producers remain so optimistic in the face of all the obstacles they face and why they keep returning to make more films. They have the reassurance of knowing that there's still this communal spirit out there in indie filmmaking, no matter how challenging life can be for those starting out. It keeps the faith in what tends to be a continual uphill challenge. And as much as we're excited about our projects and our future careers, we also love and come to depend on that close-knit camaraderie that comes with all of that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you form a little family, you know. That's the really fun part. I definitely have people come, even now, crash at my place from, from Christine, from, you know, our prop master, to whomever. You know, everyone just sort of stays at each other's houses and you still hang out and just sort of take care of each other. I think you kind of have to do that in independent film, and that's the really nice part about it, too. That was Rowan Riley from Burn Later Productions. Listening to her is a reminder of how independent filmmaking means walking that constant tightrope between taking risks and feeling protected enough to be able to keep going. And perhaps that's the real answer to sustainability in cinema, finding ways to be able to take those necessary leaps into the unknown, and in the process satisfying the desire to experience something new in the theatre, all the while knowing that you have a safety net beneath you that makes business sense. The founders of Burn Later came from the world of real estate development, a business that revolves around finding the right properties and partners, evaluating risks and balancing business and creativity. The art of skilled project management, in other words. Given Burn Later's track record so far, other indie producers and film financiers might consider building their dream projects on similar foundations. Well, that's all for this week. Tune in next week for more insights when we speak with our next industry guest. And until then, stay foolish. Stay foolish.